The Old Testament reading for today is Numbers 11, 16 through 30. Numbers 11, 16 through 30. The New Testament reading and our sermon text, Luke 9, 46 through 56. As we go to Numbers 11 and start to read in verse 16, you should know that here Moses is leading the people of Israel after having been redeemed from Egyptian bondage. He's struggling to lead them, though, and to govern them, and so others are appointed to help him with this burden. Numbers 11, verse 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, Gather for me seventy men of the elders of Israel, whom you know to be the elders of the people and officers over them, and bring them to the tent of meeting, and let them take their stand there with you. And I will come down and talk with you there, and I will take some of the spirit that is on you and put it on them, and they shall bear the burden of the people with you, so that you may not bear it yourself alone. And say to the people, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, and you shall eat meat, for you have wept in the hearing of the Lord, saying, Who will give us meat to eat, for it was better for us in Egypt? Therefore the Lord will give you meat, and you shall eat. You shall not eat just one day, or two days, or five days, or ten days, or twenty days, but a whole month until it comes out your nostrils and becomes loathsome to you, because you have rejected the Lord who is among you, and have wept before Him, saying, Why did we come out of Egypt? But Moses said, The people among whom I am the people among whom I am number six hundred thousand on foot, and you have said, I will give them meat that they may eat a whole month. Shall flocks and herds be slaughtered for them, and be enough for them? Or shall all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them, and be enough for them? And the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's hand shortened? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered seventy men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to them, and took some of the spirit that was on him and put it on the seventy elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. Let us go now to Luke chapter 9 and read verses 46 through 56, our sermon text for today. God's Word says, An argument arose among them, that is to say, among the disciples of Jesus, as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to him, Whoever receives this child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, 
Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And his disciples, James and John, saw it. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. This now the reading of God's holy word. May he bless the preaching of the scriptures today. To fully appreciate this section of, of Luke's gospel, I think we must get into the heads of the disciples of Jesus to know what they were thinking and even what they were feeling. And, and no, I am not suggesting that we engage in blind speculation uh, how, you ask, can we possibly know what the disciples of Jesus were thinking and what they were feeling? Well, Luke makes it quite clear in his gospel. It appears that at this moment in time, the disciples of Jesus had visions of power and glory dancing in their heads. And to be fair, it is not difficult to see why. They were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah, see Luke 9.20. They had witnessed Him perform many miracles. He had healed the sick, cast out demons, raised the dead, calmed the waves and wind with His word, and fed a great multitude until they were full and satisfied with only five loaves of bread and two small fish. And we should not forget what Peter, James, and John saw. Jesus, not long before this story that we are considering today, was transfigured on the mountain before them. Christ appeared before their eyes in His glory with none other than Moses and Elijah by His side. When He came down from the mountain, He healed the boy with a demon in the presence of a great multitude, and we are told that all were astonished at the majesty of God. Everything about Jesus, His person and His works, pointed to a glorious future. And these men, the twelve disciples, were His friends. They knew that Jesus was the long-awaited King of God's kingdom, and they were friends of the King. So it is not hard to see why the disciples of Jesus had visions of power and glory dancing through their heads. You and I probably would too. What if you were a part of the inner circle of acquaintances of a man who was ascending to a powerful throne? What would you be thinking? You might be thinking of the power and glory that would soon be yours. You might also be concerned about who was on your right and left. You might jockey for position to ensure that you would be greater than them when the kingdom finally came. You might also be concerned about rival factions within this future kingdom and the destruction of potential enemies. I think you know that this is how men think in the kingdoms of this world. Those who wish to have power and glory in this world will jockey for position. They will put down political rivals. They will rain down destruction on their enemies before their enemies can get an upper hand. And sadly, we see this kind of thinking even in the disciples of Jesus at this point in His ministry. He had to correct them. And that is what he does here in the text that is before us. The disciples of Jesus were right concerning 
Jesus' identity. He is the Christ of God. He is the King of God's eternal kingdom. But at this point in Jesus' ministry, they still could not comprehend the nature of Christ's kingdom or how it would be established and advanced. They could envision Christ seated upon His glorious throne. They could also see themselves seated around Him on their twelve thrones. But they could not see the cross of Christ. And neither could they see the crosses that they would be called to bear. Would Christ and His disciples enter into glory? The answer is yes, eventually. But first they would need to bear their crosses. Christ would have to bear His, and they would have to bear theirs. And in this way they would enter into glory. Christ would be the first man to go to glory. He is the forerunner. He is the one who opened up the way. And all who are united to Him by faith will enter into glory too, because of what Christ has done for them. But the pattern is this, first the cross, and then the glory. Jesus' disciples still needed to be taught this. And so do we. Christ is faithful to teach His people, thanks be to God. Here in the text that is open before us today, we see the disciples of Jesus warned about three things. These three things are so common in the kingdoms of this world, and yet they have no place in the kingdom of Christ. They are personal pride, a party spirit, and vengefulness. Firstly, in verses 46 through 48, we learn that there is no room for personal pride or selfish ambition in the kingdom of Christ. There in verse 46, we read, An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. I I think this is a very sad scene. What was Jesus doing? We see that He was busy ministering to needy people. And what had Jesus commanded His disciples to do? Well, not long before this, He said, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me for who would ever... For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. That is Luke 9, 23-24. But what were the disciples preoccupied with? They were arguing with one another about which of them would be the greatest in Jesus' glorious kingdom, which they undoubtedly thought would soon arrive. Notice how patient Jesus is with His disciples. In verse 47, we read, But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, I think that's an interesting expression. Uh, Jesus knew what the disciples were thinking, and He knew what they were feeling. He knew the thoughts in their minds and the passions that were raging within them. And so He took a child and put it by His side and said to them, Whoever receives this child in My name receives Me, and whoever receives Me receives him who sent me, for he who is least among you is the one who is great. Jesus, being the skilled teacher that he is, used this small child as an illustration. I picture the child being so young that he could not comprehend the significance of the moment or the meaning of the words that were spoken. A toddler, perhaps? Jesus put the child by his side. So we are to picture this. Picture the child standing there next to Jesus and looking up at him. My daughter McKenna watches a little boy a few days a week. Anthony's his name. Um, I picture a little kid like Anthony, you know. That child loves McKenna. He's not so sure of me, though. 
Whenever he comes around me, he, he gets quiet. He gets very meek. He gets very mild. He kind of looks at me out of the corner of his eye. He looks at McKenna with warmth, you know. And I kind of picture the little child standing before Jesus like this, very meek, very mild, a little bit intimidated by the surroundings, you know, not sure what to think. That is the scene that I envision. And then Jesus delivered a message. What was the message? One, His disciples were told that they should be eager to receive or welcome those who are like this child. And two, the disciples of Jesus should aim to be like this child themselves. The question is, in what sense? Certainly, there are some things about children that should not be emulated. Children need to mature. Children need to grow in knowledge and in wisdom. Typically, children are called to imitate those older and wiser than them. It is typically not the other way around. So it should be clear to all that Jesus was not calling His disciples to be like this child in every way. He was not calling His disciples to be childish or immature. But He was calling them to be childlike in some respect. What is the childlike quality that Jesus wants us to imitate? Well, in this instance, Jesus was calling His disciples to have a humble and lowly spirit before Him. He was calling His disciples to be like this small child, meek and mild, unconcerned about things like status, power, and prestige. Granted, all illustrations can be pushed too far. I I do understand that even little children will sometimes act selfishly, wanting to have all the toys for themselves or some such thing. But Christ is not addressing simple selfishness in His disciples as much as He is addressing the much more complex sin of pride and selfish ambition, leading to quarreling and even political maneuvering. I think we can see that young children are typically free from these concerns. For example, if you were to put two toddlers together on a playground, one from a poor family and the other from a noble family, I doubt that the rich child would discriminate against the poor child or that the poor child would be envious of the rich child. Those toddlers, what would they do? They would simply play. And why is that? Because the sin of pride has yet, not yet overrun their hearts. Now, if you were to do this with teenagers or adults you might run into problems. The sad reality is that as we grow older, we become more aware of things like class, power, possession, status. The sins of pride, covetousness, and selfish ambition do not naturally diminish with time. Instead, they grow like weeds and threaten to choke out the soul, leading to quarreling and even to wars. The words of Christ at the end of verse 48 make the meaning of His illustration very clear. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. In other words, Christ taught that things will be very different in His kingdom. Not only different, but but upside down. In Christ's kingdom, it is the one who is humble, who has put pride to death and has laid aside all selfish ambition, who is to be regarded as great. I think all Christians need to hear this. Pride and selfish ambition have no place in the church. They have no place in the kingdom of Christ. Husbands and wives need to hear this too. The marriage relationship must be characterized by self-sacrificial love if it is to thrive. 
Parents need to hear this, and so do children. As we grow older, we must learn more and more to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than ourselves. That is Philippians 2.3. This lesson that Christ taught His disciples on this day is especially important for pastors to hear. The apostles would soon be the leaders of the church. The church would be built upon them. If they were filled with personal pride and selfish ambition, they would fracture and the church would be left without a foundation. These men needed to learn to lead humbly and selflessly. They needed to learn it fast. For soon they would be leaders within Christ's church. Christ would be crucified. He would be buried and raised and then He would ascend. The apostles would teach and lead and then the ministry would be entrusted to pastors who are called to teach and to lead. A pastor who is consumed with pride and selfish ambition will do much harm to the church of Christ. You know, I'm reminded of the example that the apostle Paul and his co-laborers set. He wrote to the Thessalonians saying, For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. As I read 1 Thessalonians 2, 5-8 through 8, and contrast it with this scene that we are considering in Luke 9, where the disciples are here consumed with bickering, arguing with one another concerning who will be the greatest, there, there is a great contrast, is there not? This attitude, this disposition that I hear expressed by Paul is so very different than the attitude and disposition uh, that is witnessed here in the text that is open before us. Thanks be to God, these men were well trained by the time it came for them to take the lead within the church. They were well trained. They had learned to lay down their lives for the sake of others. They had learned the way of humility. They had learned the way of the cross. And may the Lord bless us all with the humble, meek, and mild disposition of, of a child, with hearts and minds unconcerned about power and prestige. And may Christ get all the glory. Secondly, in verses 49 through 50, we learn that there is no room for a party spirit in the kingdom of Christ. A party spirit is a factitious spirit, an attitude that says everyone must be just like us, and if they are not just like us, a part of our tribe or tradition, then they must be opposed. And that is forbidden in the kingdom of Christ. In verse 49 we read, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him, because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. Notice a few things about this text. One, it reveals an interesting dynamic. Jesus had his twelve apostles. They occupied a very special place in Jesus' band of disciples. They had special authority. And there were others who followed Jesus too. We will consider the story of Jesus sending out the seventy or seventy-two in Luke 10. 
So we are to envision concentric circles. Peter, James, and John were the closest to Jesus. There were nine other apostles besides him, besides them rather. And then surrounding them, there was a group of about 70 who followed Jesus. And we are also told that Jesus was often surrounded by a great multitude. Two, we see that John was concerned about a person who did not follow Jesus closely. I take this to mean that he was not one of the twelve. That seems obvious. Nor does he seem to be one of the seventy. And yet this man was casting out demons in Jesus' name. John wanted to know if he should stop the man. Three, Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. I think this saying here should be read in light of what Christ will say in Luke 11.23. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters, he says there. So whoever is not with me is against me, Jesus says in Luke 11.23. And this helps us to understand the words of Christ here in our text. Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. All things considered, I think we are to take this to mean that this man, whoever he was, was in the category of one who believed in Jesus truly, but did not walk in the most orderly way. He used the name of Jesus to cast out demons. Perhaps he did this presumptuously and inappropriately. But notice that the Lord was pleased to bring honor to the name of Christ by granting him success. It's a bit of a strange story, I know, but there's something... There's something going on here. This happened for a reason. John wanted to know if this man should be stopped, given his, what he perceived to be, disorderly conduct. And Christ said no. Let us observe what this text does not say. This text does not say that those who teach false doctrine should not be opposed. This text isn't about that. And we see clearly in other passages of Scripture that those who teach false doctrine, especially false doctrines that threaten to undermine the gospel of Jesus Christ, are to be rebuked and opposed. This situation was different. This man, whoever he was, was a follower of Jesus, though he did not walk closely with Jesus' band of disciples, the twelve and the seventy. And yet he was zealous to act. He cast out demons in Jesus' name, and the Lord was pleased to allow it and to grant him Success. It seems that the story of Numbers 16, uh, 11, 16 through 30, which, which I read earlier, is very much behind this account. Under the Old Covenant and in the days of Moses, 70 elders were appointed to serve. They assembled at the tabernacle, and as a sign that they were appointed by God to serve as elders or leaders within Old Covenant Israel, they were given the ability to prophesy temporarily. But there were two men who were not present with the seventy at the tabernacle, and they prophesied too. The Spirit fell, fell upon them as they were out in the camp, and they prophesied. Their names were Eldad, and the other was named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them, the text says. By the way, this would bring the number of elders to seventy-two. And in Numbers 11, 28-30, we read, And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses, from his youth said, My Lord Moses, stop them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that the Lord's people were prophets. Were that, would that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put His Spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. 
I think the parallels between the story in Numbers 11 and the story here in Luke 9 are striking. In fact, the parallel will continue as we get to Luke 9 and hear about the sending out of the 70, or uh, some manuscripts say 72. The word jealous is especially interesting. Moses spoke to Joshua saying, Are you jealous for my sake? In other words, are you worried about me, Joshua? Are you concerned that power and authority are being decentralized away from me and given to others? Moses was a humble man. We know that he was unconcerned with power and prestige. He was happy that the Spirit of God was being distributed so freely. The Spirit rested on the seventy so that they might rule, and it fell upon the two others besides them, indicating that God was not limited to these men, but would continue to supply His Spirit in the future for the good of His people. To understand the importance of this event that is recorded for us in Luke 9, 49-50, we only need to step back and look at where things go from here as it pertains to the furtherance of Christ's kingdom. I want you to think especially of the story that is told in Luke's second volume, the book of Acts. Yes, Christ would work powerfully through His apostles to establish and grow His church. Judas would fall and be replaced. But He would also work through others besides these. He would work through some who were certainly numbered amongst the seventy who are mentioned in Luke 10. And He would call Paul to serve as an apostle to the Gentiles, even though Paul never walked with Jesus and the twelve. That Paul was an apostle appointed by God would be proven by the Holy Spirit. You may see Acts 13. And we know from the book of Acts that the Holy Spirit was poured out freely on many in the early church. Even Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. The point is this. If a factitious party spirit had taken root amongst the disciples of Jesus, within the twelve or even the seventy, the church simply would not have survived. In other words, if the disciples of Jesus, the twelve or the seventy who walked most closely with Him, had this attitude that only they could do kingdom work, and all others who did not walk with them were to be forbidden, then the growth of the church and the furtherance of the kingdom would have been greatly stifled. The Holy Spirit was about to be poured out liberally on all flesh. The kingdom of Christ was about to spread like wildfire to the ends of the earth. The apostles would play a very important role. So too would the eyewitnesses of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. But the church would be built up rapidly upon the foundation of these. Here John and the rest of the apostles with him were warned against stifling the working of the Holy Spirit in the advancement of the kingdom of Christ through the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that is the lesson that these men learned in this moment. Did they hold a privileged place in God's working, in the establishment and advancement of His kingdom? Yes, indeed. But they were not everything. God would soon do a great work and build upon them. You know, I'm reminded of that passage in Philippians 1, 15-18, where Paul says, Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. That passage strikes me whenever I read it. What is Paul describing? There were some people who were preaching the gospel truly and with good motives in their hearts, sincerely. And there were other people who were preaching the gospel of of Jesus Christ truly, but with bad motives, very impure motives. And Paul asks the question, what about it? What are we to think of this? And he says, I rejoice in it all. Why? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is being proclaimed truly. God will sort out the rest, you know, as to the motives or whether or not these men were acting in an orderly manner. God will judge all of that. God will sort out all of that. It's a very interesting perspective that Paul had, and I think it is a perspective that is really rooted in the text that is open before us today, where John was tempted for a moment to rebuke this man who was casting out demons in Jesus' name because he didn't walk so closely with them. Paul wasn't so concerned about the man who preached or the motive behind the preaching. He was concerned about the message. If Christ was proclaimed truly, then in that he rejoiced. Again, I think this is the lesson taught by Jesus in Luke 9, 49-50. There is no room for a party spirit in the kingdom of Christ. And brothers and sisters, we must beware of this ourselves. We must beware of this ourselves. We love our confession, don't we? We love it because we believe it is true to the Scriptures. We might even say that we love our tradition. We see it as a good tradition, again, because we believe it is true to the Scriptures that God is glorified in it, that Christ is exalted. I might go on to say that we cherish our association with other churches of like faith and practice. Indeed, it is good and pleasant when brothers and sisters dwell together in unity and labor together for the furtherance of the kingdom. All of these things are very good. And it is good and right for us to encourage others to believe as we believe and to do as we do and to join with us. After all, we believe that we have the truth. But as we do this, we must be very careful to guard against the party spirit and factitiousness that is forbidden here in this text. Brothers and sisters, to state it positively, we ought to rejoice over the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, over the teaching of sound doctrine, over the planting of true churches, even if those churches are not a part of our particular tribe. Amen? We must be aware of this. Personal pride is forbidden in the kingdom of Christ, so too is a party spirit. The third and final lesson to be drawn from our text is that vengeance is forbidden in Christ's kingdom. I want you to look with me at verses 51 through 56. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him, because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples James and John saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Notice a few things about this text. Firstly, This text marks a great transition in Luke's gospel. Jesus had spoken about His suffering before, but here we read, "...the days drew near for Him to be taken up, 
This is a reference to Christ's crucifixion, His resurrection, and ultimately His ascension to the Father's right hand. And then we read, He set His face to go to Jerusalem. So, from this moment, Christ is heading towards Jerusalem to suffer and to enter into glory for the accomplishment of our redemption. This is a pivotal text in Luke's Gospel. Here, Christ begins to head towards Jerusalem. Secondly, as Jesus and His disciples began to journey toward Jerusalem, they needed lodging. Messengers from Jesus' band of disciples were sent ahead into a village of the Samaritans to hopefully find hospitality there. But they refused to receive Him. And a reason is given, because His face was set toward Jerusalem. The hostility between Jews and the Samaritans is well known. The Samaritans in this town would not show hospitality to Jesus and His disciples, all of them being Jews, because they were heading towards Jerusalem and they did not approve. Many reject Jesus because He does not fit with their desires and expectations. And we see a case of that here. Woe to the one who rejects Jesus because He will not conform Himself to them But blessed is the one who receives Jesus humbly and conforms their will and desires to His. Thirdly, notice the way that James and John respond to this great insult. And it was a great insult. To not show hospitality to travelers like these was a great insult. They responded in this way, saying, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now, there is a reason James and John suggested this. If you were to read 2 Kings chapter 1, you would understand the reason. There we find a story about fire coming down from heaven at the request of none other than Elijah, the prophet, to kill messengers of the king of Samaria who had rejected the God of Israel. Peter, James, and John, remember, had just witnessed Jesus glorified on the mountain with Moses and Elijah at his side. This was a village of the Samaritans, and so James and John, being filled with anger at the insult shown to them and to the God of Israel, recalled this event from the history of redemption. They knew that they were following one that was even greater than Elijah. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them, is what they said. Some ancient manuscripts include the words, as also Elijah did, I think to make it clear. Uh, that there is a parallel between these two events. But Jesus, notice, He turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. What did Jesus rebuke except their vengeful spirit? It should be recognized that this situation was not the same as the one encountered by Elijah. This village was filled with many innocent people, women and children, most of them who were ignorant of the plans and purposes of God in Christ Jesus. So to destroy this village over an offense would not have been just. Also, Jesus rebuked them because a new age had come. Christ would soon inaugurate a new covenant. And the kingdom of God under this new covenant would not advance in this way. Instead, Christ came to save. He came to save, not to destroy. Christ would lay down His life for His people. And His disciples would be called to do the very same thing. Not to fight and to seek Revenge on enemies. Paul addresses this in his letter to the Romans. By the way, the Romans were certainly 
tempted. That is to say, the Christians in Rome were certainly tempted to take vengeance on their enemies. But Paul wrote to them saying, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That is Romans 12, 19-21. Again, I might ask you the question, if you were to compare and contrast the attitude of Paul the Apostle in Romans 12, 9 with this story that we are considering in Luke, do you see the difference? Do you see how at this moment in time the disciples of Jesus were thinking in a very worldly way? They were puffed up with pride. They were filled with selfish ambition. They were factitious at this moment in time. They would even seek revenge against their enemies. At this moment in time, they looked very worldly. But Christ taught them a better way. He taught them that His kingdom would function in a very different way. It would not be like the kingdoms of this world. It would be an upside-down kingdom. So, brothers and sisters, we have attempted to get into the minds of the disciples of Jesus Again, it should be clear to all that, it is at, that at this moment in time, the disciples were filled with visions of glory, personal pride, selfish ambition. They were beginning to do what men and women so often do in situations like these, and that is to form factions and being driven by their passion for power and glory. They were willing to rain down fury on all who opposed them. These things had to be purged from these men if the kingdom of Christ was to prosper under their lead. Again, Christ's kingdom is not of the world. It does not function like the kingdoms of this world function. In many respects, it is an upside-down kingdom. It is those who are filled with humility, love, and a self-sacrificial spirit who are great. May the Lord bless us with these gifts, and may Christ our King receive all the glory, honor, and praise. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Our Father in heaven, we thank you often for Christ and for the salvation that is ours in Him. We thank you for the many benefits that come to us through faith in Christ, justification, adoption, sanctification, and the other blessings that flow from these. But Lord, I, help, I pray that you would help us to be mindful of the fact that you have called us to walk in this world as your people, that you have called us to further your kingdom even now. Lord, Grant us understanding of the nature of your kingdom and how we are to live within it. And Lord, I pray that you would give us success, that we would see the kingdom advanced even in our day, that the gospel of Jesus Christ would go forth with the power to save. We ask that you would bring sinners to repentance and faith in Jesus, and that you would do it through us, O God. But Lord, I pray that you would give us the wisdom and the strength to walk as you have called us to walk in this world. If there is pride in us, if there is selfish ambition, if there is a party spirit or vengefulness, I pray that you would drive it out, O Lord. Grant us humility. Fill our hearts with love for you, O God, for one another in Christ Jesus, and even for our enemies. Lord, help us to do what Paul has commanded, that we would not seek personal vengeance, but that we would leave it to you. Instead, Lord, help us to do good, even to those who oppose us. 
Lord, make us fruitful. Have mercy upon this land. Grow your church. Expand your kingdom here into the ends of the earth, we pray. In Christ's name and all of God's people say, Amen. Amen.